As we please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 22 this morning, if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 958, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 22. So we're back in 1 Corinthians after our two-week break for Palm Sunday and Easter, and just to recap where we are, the Corinthian church is very much like the city of Corinth itself. They were, they were prosperous. They were pluralistic. They were promiscuous. And, and many of the attitudes of the, the larger culture were present in the church. And in this way, the Corinthian church is, is really very similar to our modern American church. And in this letter, Paul systematically addresses different areas where the church is failing to be distinct, failing to be different in the world, but rather adopts the values of the culture. And the letter is broken down into different sections addressing different problems. So Paul has ad- addressed the problem of factions in the church where, where each person was identifying more with their favorite leader. He addressed sexual immorality, immorality that was not even seen, not even tolerated among the pagans. He talks about marriage. He talks about lawsuits among believers. He talks about idolatry. He talks about Christian freedom. Well, in this current section that we are in, chapters 11 through 14, Paul is now concerned with worship. And in our last sermon we looked at two weeks ago, we looked at the proper roles for for men and women and their outward distinction in worship with respect to the specific issue of head coverings. And this last week, or or I should say this week and, and next week, we will discuss the proper understanding of the Lord's Supper. Today, specifically, we're going to look at the error in the Corinthian church and and how this really exposes their complete misunderstanding of the purpose of both the Lord's Supper and and really the role of worship itself. And next week, Lord willing, we will look at the the institution of the Lord's Supper. And that is, I, I love how God providentially has this fall on a day that we will actually be celebrating the Lord's Supper during our morning worship. So 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 22. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, we do pray for your spirit to be with us. Father, I pray for your spirit to be with me, that I will speak your truth. And Father, I pray that each of us will hear from you. Father, your Holy Spirit will open our ears to hear the truth. And Father, it will not just be an intellectual exercise, but we will be changed. We will be changed by your word. We will act differently. We will think differently. We will be differently. We'll be more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, Paul starts off this this section telling the Corinthians that he doesn't commend them. He doesn't commend them in this area that he's about to discuss. And and this is contrasted with what we saw in the the beginning of chapter 11, 
where he says, now I do commend you. And I think the reason for this difference is that the Corinthian secular culture of this day may have been more in tune, more in alignment, more in agreement with the, the biblical principles with respect to this first part of the chapter, which we looked at two weeks ago, the, the women's roles and the sexual distinction. I think they were more in tune with that than what they are discussing in this section that we're looking at today. So even though they were doing the right thing, even though the culture was in basic agreement with the biblical principles, they didn't understand the principles. They were doing the right thing, but they were not doing it for the right reason. So Paul has to then explain to them the principles behind what they are doing. He still needs to teach them, even though their behavior is more or less in agreement with biblical behavior. Well, in this section that we're looking at today, their secular worldly understanding of this issue really was diametrically opposed to biblical principles. As has been really the problem with the Corinthian church is that the secular understanding has then seeped in to the church. So they're not commended. They need to be instructed. Well, in both cases, they needed instruction. In one case, they, they missed a point. They did not understand the biblical principles. But in another case, they were doing the right thing for the right reason. And I think if Paul were writing this, this letter to us today, to the modern American church, he would reverse these commendations. I think the modern American church would not be commended on issues concerning gender roles and gender distinctions precisely because the secular culture's understanding of these issues is completely opposite. And the culture's understanding has infiltrated the church, and it's diametrically opposed to biblical principles. Conversely, our secular understanding related to issues discussed in this section, such as care for the poor, a humility with respect to material blessings, and perhaps because of the, the historic Christian influence of our culture, I believe we are more in alignment with biblical principles than they were in Corinth. See, we may not do the right thing, but we're doing at least we're at least closer than the Corinthians were in this area. But even if this is true, we are doing the right thing not for the right reasons. See, nearly everyone in our society, across the political spectrum, left, right, middle, middle, regardless of, of your faith tradition, whether you're Christian, non-Christian, or even atheist, would agree that we should care for the poor. We should care for the marginalized. They would be in agreement that those who are, who are wealthy and powerful should display gratitude and humility and be willing to, willing to help those who are less fortunate. This is a, a universally admired trait. And some of the, the most generous philanthropists are non-Christians. Some are even atheists. Bill Gates, who gives away billions of dollars, does not believe in God. And this view that we have today, I don't think this view is natural to our species. Rather, I do believe that this is a result of the historical Christian influence that's fairly universal in our Western culture today. <clears throat> but even if these views may be, be dominant, the reason for these views and, and the applications resulting from these views, they diverge widely. We not only do the right thing, we need to, to do the right thing for the right reason. We need to do it in the right way. Put another way, we are in just, in need, in just of need of this instruction as the Corinthians were, even if it appears, even if it appears on surface that we are doing the right thing. 
See, it's, it's, it's real easy for us to look at it and say, we've got that right, and just completely to disregard what is said here to the Corinthians. So, as usual, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this, this passage verse by verse in order to understand the argument, understand the, the context, and then we'll draw a few applications from, for our current context. So, starting off in verse 17. So, the reason Paul does not commend the Corinthians is because when they come together, that is for worship and for the Lord's Supper, it's not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, their worship services and, and their celebration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, they're not building each other up in Christ. They're not making each other more like Christ. And as a result, Christ is not honored. Christ is not glorified because of this. But on the contrary, the opposite is happening. Worship is not making them better. Rather, it's making them worse. It's making them collectively worse. And this is a problem. You see, Paul gives the main reason why this is true in verse 18. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. And this is a, this is a serious charge that Paul is leveling against them. See, the divisions, there are divisions here in the church. And this is the polar opposite. The polar opposite of what the church is meant to be. See, Christ's mission, when he came down here, is to break down barriers. First and foremost, Christ broke down the barrier between a holy God and sinful men. And because of that, we can now come into God's presence. We can be reconciled with God. But that's not the only reason why Christ came. We are reconciled with God, so then we now could be reconciled with each other. See, when our fundamental relationship with God goes from one of being enemies of God, being rebels against God, under his just judgment, to beloved sons and daughters under grace, our fundamental relationship with others is then changed. We're no longer strangers. We're no longer enemies. We are brothers and sisters. We have the same Father. We have been all changed by the same Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Christ comes, he breaks the barrier, the barrier between Jews and Gentiles, the barrier between male and female, between slaves and free, between rich and poor. See, the relationship among Christians, this is closer. This is closer than any other human relationship, even closer than human family relationships. It, tr it transcends every division, race, ethnicity, na nationality, socioeconomic status. It is an eternal bond that we have with one another. I remember a pastor would say, he'd get up in church and say, look around at the people around here. You better get along with them. You're going to be stuck with them for all eternity. And that is the case. We have an eternal bond. The truth is we're actually closer to a believer living on the other side of the world in a completely different culture, maybe, maybe living at poverty level, speaking a different language. We are closer to them than we are to even someone in our own family, our own brother or sister, maybe even a twin brother or sister who does not know the Lord. And furthermore, Christ commands his church, commands his disciples to be united. He says, you are to be one as the Father and I are one. He gives a new commandment to the church, to love one another. This is our purpose. And what the Corinthians have done is they turned this on their head. The church, rather than being a place where worldly distinctions and barriers just, just melt away, it's become a place where they are clearly and sinfully displayed for all the world to see. And these factions and this, this unity in the church, this is, this is clearly evident. So much so that Paul received a report about it. Paul actually believes the report. And that's what's meant by this last part that it says, and I believe it in part. 
Some of you may see a footnote in your Bible, especially if you're using the ESV. It says, I believe a certain report. So there was a report given to Paul, and he heard this report, and he believes it. See, these divisions not only hurt the members of the church, it tarnishes the relationship of the church. They see this. They see these divisions. Outsiders look at the church, and instead of seeing supernatural love, supernatural unity among the people, they see the same cliques, the same divisions that exist in every other human organization. The church is no different. Christ is no different. And in this, Christ is mocked. Verse 19 seems to be completely out of place, out of the blue here. And it somehow seems to contradict Paul's main argument about the, the evil of the visions. Because he says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul then is, is now is, is criticizing them for having factions in the rest of this passage and now seems to be saying that these factions, that these factions are, are necessary in order to recognize those who are genuine. Well, there, there are three different understandings of this, and I'm not really sure which one it is, but really all of them kind of fit together. So I'm just going to give you all three of them and let you decide which one you think makes the most sense here. One of them, Paul may be stating that the very fact that they have factions shows that the worldly thinking, shows that they have worldly thinking and that they're not genuine. So perhaps it's a, a warning for them, a warning for them to be distinct, to be the church, to not act like the world, to act like the church, to, to live up to their calling. And this is certainly a, a valid application, a message that the, the Corinthian church needed to hear and a, a message that we too in the modern church need to hear. So that's one understanding. Another interpretation is that Paul is actually mocking them. He, he's using irony, which he uses throughout this letter, biting irony with the Corinthians. So he's basically mocking their worldly way of thinking, he's saying there must be factions in, in order that to show us super Christians and those of us who are more knowledgeable and those of us who are more spiritual, more genuine. So there needs to be factions because we're different. So Paul is basically saying out loud what they're thinking, which they would never say, and showing the absurdity of this attitude. So this is another interpretation. A third interpretation is that Paul is again quoting a, a, a Corinthian maxim. And we, we've seen this throughout, where there would be things in quotes, which were maxims, which were slogans, that the Corinthians had, that maybe questions that they asked Paul, and he shows them how they're invalid. And we've discussed this idea in, in previous places in the letter. Well, regardless of, of what the interpretation is, I think the conclusion is the same with all three. The divisions are bad for the church, bad for individuals, and they should not exist. Then in verses 20 to 22, Paul describes a specific problem. He states in verse 20 very clearly and bluntly. He said, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. See, they think they're being obedient. They think they're following the Lord's command that he gave at the Last Supper to remember his death and resurrection. That's what we celebrate through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But they're practicing it in a way, in a way that has the exact opposite result of what it was intended. So the Lord's Supper was intended to build up the church, but rather the way they're doing it, it's tearing down Instead of being for the better, it's being for the worse. See, the Lord's Supper is called communion. It's called communion because we have communion with God. We have communion with Christ in this meal. But we also have communion with one another. See, this is the whole reason why we don't have private communion to some traditions do. We always have to have it as part of a church service. Even when we go to a shut even when we go to Gwen's house, we take the church the elders and, and about seven of us, we go over there and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have a full service because it is a communion. 
See, it's not just a, it's not just a vertical event. It's not just me and God. It's it's vertical and horizontal. See, we are a family coming together. We are brothers and sisters coming together in our Father's house. We are eating this meal with our Heavenly Father and with our elder brother Jesus, all through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a family meal. And the fundamental characteristic of communion is us as God's people together, both with God and, and, and with each other. We are brought together. The meal is symbolizing this communion we have. And the Corinthian practice had the opposite effect. It divided the people. It divided the people based on wealth, based on social status, rather than bringing them together. And Paul explicitly describes what they're doing in verse 21. He says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. See, each person here is satisfying his own desires. The Lord's Supper goes from being about the Lord and being about communion being about the bond that, that God's people have with each other to what I want. It goes to be about me, what's most enjoyable for me, what's necessary for me. So what would happen is, is the rich people would, would come with, with plenty of food only for themselves. And they would then stuff themselves while there was a poor person right next to them who was going hungry. And this discrepancy, this is the real bad part, is this discrepancy is clearly seen. And it is bringing shame on the poor person, showing it's highlighting his lack. And if this wasn't bad enough, some would go so far even to overindulge in wine to the point of getting drunk. And setting aside the fact that getting drunk itself is sinful, is disgraceful among a Christian, even worse in a worship service, putting that aside, again, this action highlights this discrepancy. It's putting a spotlight on the differences, the worldly differences of wealth, among the worshipers. So instead of, of, of bringing the people together in love and humility, these practices puff up the wealthy by showing their clear superiority in worldly means, and they humiliate the poor by showing their lack. And Paul's frustration comes out in verse 22 as he ties his whole argument together and shows really the essence of their sin. He says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. He's saying, understand this. The church is not your personal house. It's not the place where you take care of your own personal needs. He says, if you're hungry, eat at home. If you're thirsty, drink at home. And notice what Paul's not saying here. He's not saying that there should not be inequality with wealth. He's not saying that the wealthy should sell all they have and equally distribute it. No, not at all. It's fine for them to eat well, but they're to do this in their own home, not in the church. At home, you take care of yourself. At home, you enjoy the blessings that God has given you. There's no need to feel guilty. There's no need to feel ashamed in what you have or what you don't have at home. But when you come to church, your motivation changes. At church, during worship, it's no longer about myself. It's no longer about taking care of my own needs and desires. It's about glorifying God. It's about building up my brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is the understanding that the Corinthians seem to miss. But they were thinking worldly. They were, they were basically inflating their own egos in a worldly sense by highlighting their superiority, at least with respect to wealth their superiority to others. They basically say, look how great I am. 
Look how much better I am than this other person. Look how much more I have than this other person. They sound a lot like the Pharisee, don't they? When the Pharisee and the tax collector, when the Pharisee says, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men, like this tax collector. You know what Jesus said about the Pharisee and the tax collector? He said the tax collector went home justified, not the Pharisee. And in this, they were really despising the church. And they were despising the church because they were completely missing. They were completely ignoring the call of the church. They were ignoring how the church is called to be a place that is radically different from the world. But rather, they were completely removing any distinction. And they were operating the church as if it were just any other human institution. So instead of loving their their fellow Christians as Christ commanded them, in reality, what they're doing is they're humiliating them. They are treating the poor brothers not with love and compassion, but rather they are exposing their lack. They are humiliating. They are bringing shame upon them. They're putting a spotlight on what they don't have. And all for the purpose of making themselves look better in comparison. And these people really expected to be applauded. See, because this is what the culture did. They were doing what the culture did. The world applauded the wealthy. The world applauded the successful. The world applauded the ones who made it clear, who flaunted their wealth. And they really expected the church to do the same. But Paul doesn't. Paul says, absolutely not. He says, you guys completely missed the point. I cannot commend you. And rather, they are given a rebuke. Now, at this point, we need to understand the cultural difference between first century Corinth and 21st century America. In first century Corinth, wealth and power were admired and flaunted, both admired and flaunted. No one saw this as a problem. They would see no problem, really, what was happening in the church. And they expected, as I mentioned, Paul to commend them. This type of practice was normal, was expected, it was admired. But Paul has shown the church is utterly different. The church is countercultural. The church is countercultural then and today. Now today, there, there are still people in places that openly and crassly will flaunt their wealth. There are people who are just like the Corinthians, and this is probably most clearly seen in, in prosperity gospel situations in churches, where people are told that, that God wants you to be wealthy. And if you're not wealthy, it's your fault. It's because you did not have enough faith. And can't you see just how destructive this, this evil, heretical theology is? How destructive it is to the poor? to those who are struggling, to those who just don't have the ability, who don't have the gifting, who don't have the opportunities as other people have. And not only is this horrible teaching highlight the, the economic failing of some, but what it does is it places the blame solely on the poor. It makes it not only an economic failing, but it's also a moral failing. It's a spiritual failing. You don't have enough faith. That's why you don't have what you have. And while there are a few that have this view... Few that make the same errors as the Corinthians did, and, I, and they would receive the same rebuke as the Corinthians did. I think for the most part today, for the most part, this attitude is seen as repulsive, both by Christians and non-Christians. And this is why the prosperity gospel is repulsive, both by Christians and non-Christians. And even if we have these feelings, even if we see it as, as uncouth and, and unpolite society, what we do is we hide these attitudes. We, we, may, we may have some jealousy. We may feel that. We may have some, 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 some pride issues. But we know that it's uncouth. We, we hide it. 
We'd be embarrassed if others found us acting this way. Right? I couldn't imagine a person trying to build themselves up by humiliating another person with less wealth. Just, that would certainly backfire today if we were doing that. So the question is, does this mean the text has nothing to say to us? Are we all off, off the hook if we're not doing this, if we're not flaunting our wealth, if we're not involved in the prosperity gospel? Are we, can we now just check out and say it has nothing to say, say to us? Not at all. This applies to each one of us. See, while the outward expression has changed, the same sin exists. same sin that exists in the Corinthians still exists in us. Our culture today still seeks to draw distinction among people. We just do it in different ways. We still seek to build ourselves up at the expense of others. We still like to highlight our virtues by shining a spotlight on another person's sin. We look where we are good. We show where they are bad. And just like with the Corinthians, this tendency has, corrupt, has crept into our church. Where the church is called to be countercultural, we simply reflect the sins of our culture. So what does this look like today? Well, there are many ways this looks like. I'm just going to pick one to look at. It's not the only one, but it's one that I think the church particularly deals with and, and, and suffers with, both the, both the conservative church and the liberal church, the progressive church. I would say this looks at the idea of political correctness, the idea of virtue signaling, something that's endemic in our society. It's when our political ideology, and again, it could be right, left, center, has become our identity, even over our identity in Christ. It, be, it becomes the most important thing in our lives. And sadly, this attitude that is so common in our culture has slipped into the church. See, instead of coming together for the better, what we do is we come together for the worse. Instead of building fellow believers up, we tear them down. We show our virtue. That is that we have the right ideology. We identify with the right people by highlighting our brother's vice. We highlight that our brother is on the wrong side. And sadly, the, the temporal, worldly issues that separate us, they become more important than the eternal bond that we have in Christ. Again, we are going to be with each other for eternity. Even if we don't agree with each other's politics, we're going to be with each other for eternity. And it won't matter. It won't matter. And the worst thing we do is we redefine words. Words that, that carry emotion and history. We redefine them. To apply to anyone, brothers, even brothers and sisters in Christ, who don't agree with us, who don't see things the way we see them. We label a person a racist, a word that is connected with real and historic evil. We label a person a racist if they have a different understanding on voting and whether we should have IDs or not. We label a person woke. We label a person liberal as in compromising the faith if they happen to acknowledge that there are structures in our society that favor a majority culture over a minority culture, and that these structures somehow, sometimes perpetuate inequalities, we label them as compromisers and woke. So the sin of the church is that politics or, or non-biblical ideology has become our dominant identity. We overlook the blatant sins of our guy while magnifying and highlighting the sins of the other guy. And my friends, it's not saying that we can't have strong opinions. We certainly can. We can have positions on political and secular issues. We certainly can. And we can fight for these positions in the secular arena, but not in the church. The church is not a political action committee. The church is the bride of Christ. Christians are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not proponents of any worldly 
ideology. And this is not saying that there are not real differences in theology and biblical application among Christians. There certainly are. And these issues must be addressed. They are addressed openly and lovingly using Scripture as our final arbiter. We do not ignore the differences that we have among brothers. We do the hard work. We, we do the iron sharpening iron work. We have those conversations. But at the end of the day, we love one another. We build one another up. Even if we have different opinions on these things, we do not tear each other down. See, Satan doesn't care. Satan doesn't care if you're right, left, center. But if your politics become an idol, if it keeps you from loving your brothers and building them up, then we have already lost. My friends, the church, the bride of Christ, is a supernatural institution. And it's the only institution. It is the only institution in this fallen world empowered by the Holy Spirit. Empowered to unite fallen, sinful people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different opinions, people who would never naturally get along. And we are all united in Christ, serving him, seeking his glory. And this love and unity that we experience, this is a minuscule. This is, this is a foretaste of the glorious reality, the glorious relationship that we as brothers and sisters in Christ will have with each other for all eternity. And until then, until then, we may enjoy, may we enjoy and display this reality of the church to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do admit that we... As fallen sinners, we always identify with other things. We have made other idols. We have other loves other than you. And because of that, we have been separated from brothers and sisters. And Father, we pray that you will allow us each to to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but seek what is best for others. And Father, we pray that you will give us that attitude, that you will give us that humility to seek to, to, to build others up, not tear them down. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.